It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Okay, guys, question. Are you more likely to write a tell-all about your family? Or do you think it's more likely a family member would write a tell-all about you? Oh, God, that's a terrifying question. Shane would definitely write the tell-all. Definitely you, would be the author of the tell-all. For sure. For sure. And if someone's going to write about it, me and my family, I get to pick who it is. And I'm definitely picking my dad because he can't even form sentences. I think in my family, it's the whole thing as a matter of mutually assured destruction and kind mm -hmm. of deterrence because we could all do it. Maybe Gurgi the dog is taking notes on all you do. You made me get surgery. Dog is going to get you in the end. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the blob, blah blob edition. That's a bit of a rat Rorschach test. Uh, if you hear blah, 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 what TV show do you think I'm referencing? Arrested Development. Naturally. The Bob, blah, 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 blog. The blah, blah, blog. Oh my God, I feel like such an ignoramus. I have no idea what they're talking about. Because what do you think it references? I think of blah, 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 which it then sends me to yada, yada, yada. Right. Yeah. It has a seinfeld quality to it. But this maybe that's just because we're old. This is the Laurel Yanny of podcasts right now, <laughs> you know. Uh, I'm Shane Harris. We're going to get to why we're calling this the blah, blah, blah edition very soon. And we might even talk about some family memoirs on the podcast today, you guys. It's going to be mm. a fun-filled edition. I am here in our virtual jungle studios with my good friends Benjamin Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi. Yo. Everyone's there taking notes on each other. I will write a tell-all about this podcast for sure. Oh, my God. So many people would read that. <laughs> that was serious. <sighs> on the podcast this week, the Trump administration issues new restrictions on immigration in response to the coronavirus pandemic. A major witness in the impeachment hearings retires amid concerns the White House might try to block his military promotion. And progressives mount an effort to shape the future of national security, sometimes to the dismay of the Biden campaign, or as you might call it, the blob. It's the revenge of the blob. The blob strikes back. The blob will not be deterred. The blobbing. Electric the blobbing. The blob will not be blobalooza. We're going to talk a lot about that in our third segment. But let's start uh, with news on immigration. Uh, Tammy, uh, this is encompassing some moves in the past couple of weeks, really. But uh, the president has issued an executive order suspending uh, visas that are given to, among others, students and people who are here on cultural exchanges. And the administration is also threatening to send back foreign students who don't take 
or who take their classes uh, online rather than attending a university. Put this into some context for us. Obviously, the president has a long track record uh, on immigration and specifically being hostile to immigrants. Uh, He says these are measures to protect the labor market during the pandemic and are in the United States national security interest. Is that right? Uh, Look, I mean, this is of a piece with a broader set of policies, including just a few weeks ago, an effort to suspend uh, a whole category of skilled worker work visas. And so this is for student visas. And it affects not only, you know, undergraduates, which, you know, foreign students who pay full tuition are a major source of income for a lot of universities, but it also affects graduate students and postdocs who are here gaining really valuable skills in fields like, you know, artificial intelligence or um, biochem. And the effect of cutting off these visas, unless they're taking in-person classes, is to take people who the U.S. education system has already given a lot of skills and essentially lose those skills to the U.S. workforce and to the U.S. economy. So, you know, if part of the assumption is that our educational system attracts the best and brightest around the world, you know, and uses them to the advantage of our own economy, the effect of this decision is basically to eliminate that competitive advantage for the United States. It's also something that just adds another layer of kind of cruel disruption and a weird sort of enforcement priority for DHS and and for immigration and customs enforcement in the middle of a pandemic that was already creating a lot of uncertainties for universities it is understood by a number of them to be a way of pressuring them to reopen in-person classes and create a sense of normalcy that the Trump administration seems desperate to create and then for ice you know If the president is concerned about uh, drug smuggling uh, and illegal immigrants taking jobs, why is he setting up ICE to prioritize deporting students? It, It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And look, notably, um, Harvard and MIT have filed a lawsuit against ICE as of today, basically saying that, look, this is a violation of the Administrative Procedure Act. This is an arbitrary and capricious decision that is motivated by a desire to pressure schools into, you know, into reopening by putting them in sort of a under tremendous financial uh, financial strain because international students are such a huge source of revenue. Listeners who don't follow these types of cases very closely might still remember the Administrative Procedure Act as uh, from the recent DACA case in which John Roberts determined that the Trump administration had behaved in an arbitrary and capricious manner, in part for failure to consider the hardship that its decisions would uh, place in the lives of people who are actually impacted by this. So it's sort of it's it's the Trump executive order redux, um, not just in that sense, but also in the accidentally saying the quiet part out loud. Um, Ken Cuccinelli immediately tweeted the you know he's the head of USCIS, but now the acting deputy to the acting DHS secretary, so like acting on acting on acting, um, tweeting that this was going to encourage uh, universities to reopen. So sort of admitting 
learning that this wasn't actually about, uh, you know, health and safety, um, you know, or, or immigration enforcement, but was about the president trying to pursue a totally unrelated policy priority. And so, you know, it's a little bit like Groundhog Day with this administration of just the same fundamental sort of cruelty and carelessness when it comes to navigating the law. Um, I think this is going to be another case of sort of a self-inflicted wound where they might have been able to get away with it had they been just a little tiny bit smarter and more careful. Um, But as is, I I think it's likely a court does strike this down. I also think, you know, the point that that Tammy mentioned uh, in passing is worth highlighting. You know, the United States does not have the greatest primary and secondary school system in the world. We do have the greatest university system in the world. And the result is that a very large number of people come to the United States to study. And this is one of our primary, it's a very significant engine of economic growth that people come from all over the place to study here and they end up staying or working here for some substantial period of time. You know, the number of languages that are spoken in Silicon Valley is really huge. And if you create a world in which you have a lot of doubt as to whether foreign students can stay in the United States or you make it too difficult for them, it's not like there aren't other places for them to go. And that is a source of U.S. competitiveness that you're just pouring out. It's it's a really self-destructive thing to do. I think, too, it comes at a moment when the COVID pandemic has created a crisis for American universities, and their business model was already being challenged in a bunch of ways, including the student debt crisis that was making the benefits of that high-quality higher education less and less available to American students and less meaningful as a source of social mobility for Americans in general. And then you add covid which basically, you know, forces universities to close down while still maintaining a massive physical plant, not get the tuition dollars that they need to sustain all of the staff, much less faculty. It interrupts research, right? And they have to figure out how to handle that. And then on top of that, now the Trump administration is saying, and by the way, your most reliable source of tuition income, we're going to cut off. Um, and so I really think this this could be I don't I doubt it was intended to do this, but this could be a policy change that tips at least some universities over into financial unsustainability, financial inviability. And to me, it, this was already a moment that um, universities were finding their business model so thoroughly challenged that somebody is going to have to reinvent it in order for these universities to survive. And I think that we may see more schools fail this year as a result of this policy. Susan, I wonder, you know, going back to your point that this is the way they've constructed this is likely to to face a challenge and the challenge might be successful. You know, I also wonder if it's possible that the, that the administration realizes, or more precisely, the president, because that's really where this is coming from, realizes that he's just harmed, uh, done more harm than good. Uh, it won't necessarily satisfy, you know, a particular constituency. And as Tammy points out, you start, you know, causing economic disruption to to universities that, after all, are large employers in the communities where they're based. Could they just 
pull this thing back? I mean, sometimes I wonder if these are just half-baked ideas they throw out there and say, yeah, no, never mind, and then try to take it back. Yeah. I, I mean, I do think this is a half-baked idea that they throw out there, although I think this is more likely the kind of half-baked idea that Trump then doubles down on, right, um, as soon as he gets sort of pushback on it. Um, you know, there's also a sense to which um, the harm has been inflicted, because certainly any students that were contemplating uh, studying in the United States but had some reservations um, are going to be even more unlikely to, to do so now. Um, and for international students who are facing, who are currently in the United States, have children enrolled in schools in the United States and are sort of planning for the year, a lot of those students are not going to wait around to see how litigation shakes out or see whether or not Donald Trump changes his mind or then changes his mind again. I think a lot of those people are going to say, look, this is the middle of a pandemic and I'm going back to my home country or I'm going to a third country where there actually is some degree of reasonable stability here. Um, and so I, I think sort of no matter what happens uh, from this point forward, forward, we, we are going to experience some costs and some, uh, you know, really significant uh, financial drain and brain drain because, you know, there's only so much that we can expect international students to, to put up with in exchange for, for the privilege of, of access to American universities. It also just reminds me of how, you know, he's he was granted railing about secondary and primary schools today and earlier in the week, but it seems of a piece with that, of this desire to force things back to normal. But, you know, as with so many of his actions during the course of the pandemic, he's not using the actual tools that he has at his disposal to hasten that recovery. For instance, I mean, Susan, you've been, you talked about this last week and you've been tweeting about it. You know, where is the massive federal organization and money for hiring new teachers, getting extra school space, et cetera, so people can get their kids back in school and they can go back to work like there's an obvious role for the federal government there. And it, it's I, I sometimes I guess I just wonder if he just hasn't thought through it and he goes with the knee jerk reaction, which is to try and, you know, bully people into doing what he wants. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's the totally irrational pursuit of policy constantly, right? And if Donald Trump actually cared about schools being reopened in the fall, whether that's a month from now or, th or two or three months from now, he'd be pouring money into states, not just wagging his finger and saying, I'm I'm increasing pressure on you via tweet to reopen schools. I mean, it's, it's just hideously counterproductive stuff. But I think it also emphasizes something that, you know, we've mentioned over and over again and is brutally apparent to everybody at this point in the Trump administration, which is that he doesn't actually care about governance. Um, and to me, the decision to do this now in the middle of all the considerations that we've laid out is further evidence of, number one, that um, for him, it's about the narrative, not about the substance. He doesn't actually care about the financial impacts, the competitiveness impacts, you know, how this gets implemented, the uh, opportunity cost for ICE. He doesn't care about any of that. And he would love the fact that Harvard and MIT are suing him over it. That just helps his anti-elitist narrative. Um, he doesn't care about the policy aspect at all. And the second thing that I think it drives home is that, you know, this is the this is the all or nothing go for broke portion period of the Trump presidency or at least of Trump term one. God help us. You know, he has now survived multiple scandals that would have sunk any other administration. He has now survived impeachment on the faithlessness of Republican senators to the oaths that they swore. 
he is running for re-election and he really doesn't care about anything else than his own electoral success. He will roll out gross, thoughtless policy after gross, thoughtless policy from here until November, whatever he thinks will help him win. Well, speaking of the impeachment, just when you thought we'd put that story behind us, comes news today that one of the star witnesses in those proceedings, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who listeners will recall was the uh, Ukraine uh, expert at the White House and listened in on that fateful call that the president had with the president of Ukraine, where he tried to pressure him into supporting his uh, election, really, by investigating Joe Biden in exchange for military aid. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman announced today that he is retiring from the military. Ben, we at The Post and others had reported that Vindman's promotion to colonel, which had been approved by the army, was actually in jeopardy, and that there were some officials who feared that once the list made its way from the army through the Pentagon and over to the White House for what is usually a kind of perfunctory approval, uh, the president would see his name there and would take it off. Uh, and there was also concern, which I think we found was well, well founded, that this delay was holding up the promotion of other officers who were on that list. So now that Alex Vindman has decided to retire from the military rather than press the issue and go forward on promotion, does that mean that Trump got his revenge? I think it does, at least in the short term. So recall that the president had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman marched out, and his brother, by the way, uh, marched out of the White House compound uh, shortly after the impeachment was done. The president has tweeted about him personally. And at one level, the army kind of did the right thing here. They seem to have gone through a promotion process on the merits, and his name appears to have been on the list of people to be, along with probably a hundred other people, uh, to be promoted to full colonel. And it appears that folks were so fearful of the president's reaction to that, to receiving a list with Vindman's name on it, that there was a kind of stalemate as to, do you send this list up? Do you risk the president throwing a temper tantrum over the name Alexander Vindman. And of course, there's some reason to assume that the that's not an unfounded worry on the army's part. The president would have very likely thrown a temper tantrum. And so I think this put the army in a difficult position. And obviously, according to the statement, it put Vindman in, in a difficult position. It seems as though a hundred or so colonel promotions were held up over this. And I think it appears that he finally decided, you know, I'm not going to hold up everything if because the president wants to destroy my career. And so I think in the short term, yeah, the president kind of got what he wanted, which is to force Vindman out and not to allow his promotion. Now, I do think there is a backfire element to this, which is that Lieutenant Colonel Vindman was extremely presentable in in his testimony, with the possible exception of Fiona Hill, and uh, he was the the sort of star of the impeachment hearings. And uh, I do think when he comes out, which 
I don't know if that'll be, I mean, he appears to have put in his retirement papers today. It'll come out a month from now or something. And I suspect may have stuff to say, right? Once he's out of office, might be a little bit freer than he was while he was in uniform to talk. And uh, I also suspect that, uh, you know, Joe Biden has spoken about him. And I would think that somebody of that, you know, sort of solid quality that, you know, who, who comes across very well to people and came across in a very patriotic fashion, uh, being subject to this kind of retaliation and surviving and living to tell the story. And uh, that that's, you know, may not be a story that's such a great one for the president uh, when he's free to tell it, you know, right after Labor Day. Um, so I, you know, I do think in the short term, the president gets what he wants, whether, you know, whether he prefers to have Alex Vindman in the wild or to having him, you know, locked up at war college, getting a full colonel promotion and uh, forcibly silenced by his good fortune is, I think, an open question that we're going to have to wait and find out the answer to. Yeah, I agree with everything Ben just said. And, and you know, look, the protestations of both civilians and uniformed officers inside DOD who apparently wanted to stop this, um, they didn't want it bad enough. Nobody appears to have, thre- to have threatened to resign over it. There obviously wasn't sufficient pushback to actually protect this person. Um, and so, you know, look, you know, shame on Secretary of Defense Esper and, and, and anyone else who was involved in this on not doing the right thing and taking a stand on something that is a message that is about a lot more than the this sort of professional advancement of of just Vinman himself. It's about a chilling message across the United States military that if you speak out, if you blow the whistle, even if you do so pursuing lawful channels, even if you do so in response to a congressional subpoena, um, you are going to pay a price. And and this is one of dozens of examples of that, right? It's sort of it's keeping in a piece with you know um, uh, you know military um, uh, soldiers or I guess sailors in that case who spoke out against a colleague uh, committing war crimes at great uh, personal and professional expense, um, only to see the president pardon that individual, um, you know, and and restore his uh, his navy trident in the case of uh, of Gallagher um you know so this is part of sort of that that broader message of you know if if you speak truth about people in power you will pay a price for that and and i think that message has really been received. Um, you know, look, it's also plainly a part of the broader kind of Trump revenge tour. Um, and it's it's interesting that it doesn't appear to be as much directly carried out by the president himself, um, right? It's Bill Barr and the Durham investigation or letting Flynn, you know, sort of letting Flynn off the hook and the revision, the sort of revision uh, of history around uh, the Mueller investigation. Um, you know, it's, it's potentially pardoning uh, Roger Stone in the future. It's, uh, you know, it's DOD being so afraid of what the president might do that they take these retaliatory action. And, you know, I, I think it's playing out in a, in a hundred different ways. And um, a little bit, there's not much to do but sort of, sh- you know, count the days till November and, and hope that a lot of wrongs will be um, righted. But in the meantime, you know, I, I think real institutional damage is being done. 
just to pick up on Susan's point there, I think that real institutional damage was going to be done whether the Pentagon put this promotion list forward to the White House or not. And so I think that I'm guessing that if the Secretary of the Army or or SECDOF were standing here, they would defend their actions by saying, look, we're trying to protect the military institution and the promotion process from political interference. And if we had put this list forward and the president had taken his name off, that would have been a gross political interference. It would have further upset and eroded the very careful civil military balance. And so this isn't fair to Vindman, but it's it's more protective of the institution. And what I would say actually is that's that's a misunderstanding. And that when the president intimidates the institution into self-censorship, which is what happened here, that is a graver undermining of the institution than him in an open manner uh, grossly interfering with the institution. If the president personally throws a tantrum and, and pulls somebody's name off the promotion list, that is an overt act that we can all see. It is it is a specific individual, the president, and we can hold him accountable for that in November, which God willing, we will do. But the way this has has played out, they did his dirty work for him. And this is still political interference. In fact, it's political interference being carried out by those who who are doing it in the name of protecting the institution. And I think that that is actually more corrosive, harder to create accountability for, and harder to repair. So they were, Ben's right, they were in a crappy position. And I think given the crappy position they were in, they chose wrong. I agree with that. I, I, I did not mean in any way to defend the way the military had handled this. Um, I also think in Vindman's case, there's another factor which is important, uh, which is that, you know, unlike some of the witnesses, including most recently John Bolton, because he has been on active duty, I don't think he's said a word publicly uh, since this, you know, since he was marched out of the White House, right? He gave his testimony. But, you know, people like Fiona Hill and Masha Yovanovitch, although uh, Yovanovitch hasn't had a lot to say, have been kind of free to engage to the extent that they want. Uh, Vindman has not. He has been the subject of a lot of conspiracy theories on the far right, some of them quite anti-Semitic in character. You know, and so one one, I think, important aspect of this is that it does, you know, put him in a position in which he can, you know, tell his story to the extent he wants to do that. And I think that's probably an important factor. And, you know, I noticed today he suddenly has a Twitter feed that appears to be only a few days old. And I I just have a suspicion that we'll be hearing a fair bit from him. And just this, this is a last point to that, maybe while we have a minute left in the segment or so. Is that not to make this just simply about politics, but, you know, it's it's the middle of July in an election year. So it's about politics. Is this helpful to Joe Biden, do you think? Or does anybody want to weigh in on this, given that 
you know, the moment you start talking about Ukraine and those issues, it does start pointing some people back to a place that Joe Biden would like them not to be looking at, which is the whole, you know, business around, you know, baseless, let's say, allegations that his son benefited from uh, his influence as vice president. I mean, is it, in other words, would Joe Biden like Alex Finman to be talking or would he just assume that he holds his fire for now? You know, Joe Biden has talked about Alex Vindman, and so I think that that partly answers that question. He, you know, Joe Biden was not impeached over Ukraine, no matter no matter how many times Republicans try to change the subject to Hunter Biden. The one who was impeached over Ukraine is Donald Trump. And so I do think, you know, it's it's obviously the subject that Biden wants us to be talking about most is the coronavirus and the economy. But I do think having Vindman come out is something that I I suspect Biden will embrace either directly or indirectly. It's a very good story from Biden's point of view. Yeah, I tend to agree with that, that that Vindman is just yet another reminder of Trump's fundamental unfitness for office. And at the end of the day, in a thousand different ways, that is what this election is about. Trump's lack of fitness, lack of integrity, lack of ability to do the job. And and so I, I think all of the reminders of that um, and of how far we've fallen in the past three years, I, I think that all, uh, you know, sort of renounced to, to Biden's electoral benefit, ultimately. Secretary of the Army, Alexander Vindman. Okay, that might be different. You heard it here first. (laughs) But it is that time of year. I guess we don't do veep stakes in national security, but we do do what we call, we call them blob stakes. Blob stakes. There you go. The blob is back, baby. You slap a couple blob stakes on the grill. Yeah. And you, and you just decide who's, who's going to get which cut. Uh, it seems that a lot of progressives are pretty confident that Joe Biden is going to be elected president. Trump's poll numbers are a horror show, and there is a lot of speculation, and we may even do some ourselves, about potential cabinet and senior appointments in the Biden administration, uh, and a future administration, I should say. Uh, but progressives are also applying a lot of scrutiny to people who are showing up on his shortlist for positions in DOD at the State Department, the intelligence community. Many of these people uh, are folks who served at top levels in the Obama administration, uh, famously the blob, as it was sometimes called. They are names that will be familiar to a lot of listeners of this podcast. We'll talk about that. But first, Tammy, what specifically are progressives concerned about when they see a lot of these names from the Obama era coming up? What baggage do they think that these people would bring to their jobs? And and what's the pressure that they're applying now to the Biden campaign as it thinks about who to put in these very important national security positions? Yeah, so this comes in the context of a really admirable effort, I will say, within the Democratic Party to Uh, bring together the left and uh, more centrist wings of the party in advance of the Democratic Convention, which was supposed to be in a few days from now in Milwaukee and instead is going to be taking place in some kind of virtual format. But as part of that, they're working their way through the party platform and and through a whole set of, of other issues. And foreign policy and the split between, I guess, what I would call more internationalist and anti-war left uh, progressives, 
within the party. That split has been visible for a long time, but now it's really coming to a head. And I think yesterday or today, there was a letter that came out signed by, I don't know, probably a couple dozen progressive groups spearheaded by Kate Kaiser's Win Without War, addressed to Vice President Biden and laying out five basic principles that should guide personnel choices uh, in national security, and then five disqualifiers for people who should be allowed to serve in national security in a Biden administration. And if you look at the principles and the disqualifiers, it really goes to the heart of progressive core values, I guess, on foreign policy, a focus on inequality, racism, and authoritarianism, advocacy for international cooperation, reducing the budget to the Pentagon, um, re-engagement with international law and international organizations. And then, you know, the disqualifiers, I think, are really revealing. There's one about CIA torture and rendition. (laughs) Um, uh, There's one about anyone who opposed the uh, Iran nuclear deal, the joint comprehensive plan of action should be disqualified. Anyone who supports Israeli settlements or opposes the right of U.S. residents to boycott should be disqualified. Anyone who has worked for an organization that got money from an undemocratic foreign government, anyone who has advocated for U.S. military interventions in pursuit of political objectives, which is a really broad (laughs) criterion. So I think it's pretty clear that they are taking square aim at the group that I would call the internationalists and that uh, one veteran of the Biden administration has labeled the blob. What is the impact of a letter like this? Well, it's not coming all by itself. It's coming along with a wave of kind of media attention to that potential Biden shortlist, to people like Tony Blinken, a very long-term Biden aide who finished the Obama administration as deputy secretary of state, or Michelle Flournoy, who is assumed to be a top candidate uh, for Secretary of Defense and would be the first woman in that role. So we've seen articles in the Daily Beast and in the American Prospect over the last couple of days scrutinizing what these folks have been doing during the time that they have been out of government and sort of suggesting that uh, the money they've taken from the defense industry or from Silicon Valley should create some skepticism about how well they would fit in a democratic administration. I <laughs> I think one of the biggest challenges in in coming to some sort of um, negotiated agreement on these on how to handle foreign policy in a Biden administration is not, you know, Michelle Florner or Tony Blinken or Jake Sullivan. The primary challenge is Joe Biden. Joe Biden is somebody who's worked on foreign policy for decades, has personal relationships with world leaders, has a lot of really strong, not just instincts, but developed views on these issues. And most of what we know about Joe Biden suggests that he's not going to agree with the progressive wing of his party. And so, you know, I think they can make the case as strongly as they want to. But if they go to war on the basis of these principles, they're basically going to war against what the candidate himself thinks. Yeah, I think Tammy has really put her sort of finger on it that, you know, look, this is a 
a sort of second round of kind of what was the core fight in in the primary, which is sort of the identity of the nominee um, and having sort of lost that sort of the, the Bernie Sanders, um, Elizabeth Warren and, and other wing of the party, you know, sort of wanting to relitigate or or, lit- or continue to litigate uh, sort of in a proxy way on the basis of these advisors. And and look, you know, the, the I think we've learned um, in this era how incredibly important the identity of the president of the United States is in shaping these decisions. Um, you know, that said, I, I do think it's really interesting to watch this play out, this sort of fight over what the future of national progressive national security policy and progressive foreign policy might look like in part because you know this notion that we're that this is about sort of restoring the obama era and going back to something that existed before you know we don't even know that that world exists anymore or could exist anymore and so i think it's really sort of you know a, a question of is the project of the next president to do that restoration work as much as possible? Or is it to come in and say, look, um, thanks for overturning the apple cart. Uh, You guys were terrible. Get the hell out of here. But you know what? Maybe we aren't going to put things back together quite the way they were before. And we're going to take advantage of some of the norms that the Trump administration has demolished so that we can achieve our own sort of progressive policy goals. Um, and and as much as I sort of I, I tend to side with Tammy on, uh, you know, I don't I don't think that um, this is a winning argument to Biden. I do think that that's sort of a fundamental question um, that we haven't seen Biden himself sort of give voice to what exactly um, he envisions a post-Trump era looks like on these issues. There's a lot of sort of talk of, you know, return to internationalism and allies and alliances and, and you know, sort of American leadership in the world. But, you know, there was a, a lot the Obama administration got wrong. And so I think it is interesting that we haven't seen Biden himself come forward with, hey, here are a few areas in which there are brand new opportunities to think about these things in a completely different way. Um, and, and bringing on, you know, some um, some fresh advisors, although I certainly not of the um, uh, Spencer Ackerman uh, describes it in a, in a recent article in the Daily Beast as, a, as sort of the difference between more left than liberal versus more liberal than and left, um, you know, but but I, I'm hopeful, maybe Pollyanna-ish on it, um, you know, that maybe some genuine new thinking can emerge from, you know, sort of an, an honest debate within the Democratic Party right now. Yeah, I, so a couple thoughts. First of all, I, I actually think there's something quite insulting about this letter. And, you know, to say to Biden anybody who meets the following criteria should be per se excluded, several of which criteria, by the way, Biden himself does not meet, is really saying you are an inappropriate nominee. That is, we think anybody who believes the things that you have believed in the past or shared those beliefs should be excluded from your administration is pretty offensive, given that as you know, Susan just pointed out, this these issues were litigated as a pretty central part of a primary campaign. And you guys lost, you know, and 
So this does have this quality of the losers dictating terms to the winner and dictating terms in a in a fashion that's pretty insulting, actually. And I I I do think Biden is uh, likely to respond with a bit of a smirk. And uh, so that's point number one. Point number two, I agree with Susan that we have not heard a lot from Biden on foreign policy. And I believe that we will continue to not hear a lot from Biden on foreign policy because elections are, presidential elections are seldom won or lost on foreign policy issues. And if you're Biden right now, anytime you spend talking about things that aren't at the center of the the issue set, which is to say the economy and the coronavirus, race and the interaction between these three things is wasted time. And frankly, you're not playing to Trump's weakest, greatest vulnerabilities. And so I think you're likely to have a kind of constructive ambiguity on foreign policy from Biden, which is the way he will address these issues. If he speaks a lot on foreign policy, then he will he will alienate people on the left if he says the things he really thinks. But if he merely shuts up and talks about coronavirus and talks about the economy, that is a way of holding this coalition together that is... I. I suspect, has legs between now and November, which is why the focus of these letters, this letter and this campaign, is not actually about an issue set. It's about individual people. It's about the list of advisors, people like Avril Haines, who have committed the iniquitous crime of working faithfully for the Obama administration. And I think Biden's reaction to this is likely to be to kind of be quiet on foreign policy issues and appoint the people that he wants to work with. Yeah, I I think that, though, there is something to be said and something further to explore on this point about, you know, that Susan laid out about the clash between a kind of restorationist approach to foreign policy under a democratic administration and a transformational approach to foreign policy under a democratic administration. But what I would say is, you know, as a, as a card carrying member of the blob who would not qualify for service under the terms of this letter, um, I will say that I think the vast majority of us foreign policy experts, including those who served in an Obama administration, understand that restoration, by and large, is simply not possible. The world has moved on from where it was in um, January 2017, and the United States has moved on. And there were a bunch of issues that the Obama administration didn't have an answer to and that still demand answers for the American people. The biggest one, I would say, is about economic globalization and economic inequality and therefore what we do about trade. And on this, I would say that neither the centrists nor the leftists have really come up with with bold new ideas that can succeed. So, you know, you want more multilateralism. How do you deal with multilateral institutions that have been co-opted by countries that do not share our values, do not share our interests and are working to undermine us using those multilateral institutions? Win Without War doesn't have an answer to that question. Neither does the blob. How do we construct a trade policy 
that is more protective of American workers at a moment when not just the American economy, but the global economy is being transformed by technology and artificial intelligence. The leftist answer is no trade agreements. And the centrist answer is better trade agreements. And neither of these are very satisfactory answers. So to me, you know, there's a lot on which these two groups really need to be working together if they could just get past this sort of reflexive mistrust, which to me is what's underlying a lot of the criteria laid out in that letter, that it, it is about a fear of the past. It is not about a vision of the future. And um, it's not only Joe Biden, but it, I agree, it's primarily Joe Biden who has to offer that vision. Uh, this has been a very sophisticated discussion of the stakes and the future of policy. Now I want to talk now. about who's getting which job. <laughs> who's getting which job. So very quick, in the moments we have left, I want to do a quick lightning round. Who we think, if Joe Biden is elected president, who we think would get which job. All right, Secretary of Defense, throw names out. Michelle Flournoy. Yeah, right? I of mean, course. If, of course. There's no, no question. question. Okay, okay. Secretary of State. Maybe Susan Rice, if she's not a VP pick. Yeah, the thing is, what if Susan Rice is VP I don't. Th I don't think that's happening. Susan could do it. Wendy Sherman could do it. I could think of a half dozen women who could do it. In fact, I could. Tamara Kaufman Wittes could do it. <laughs> I could give you an all-female national security cabinet for this. Okay, well, it might be that. But don't you think Tony Blinken kind of has a lock on it? Unless he's going to be national security advisor or chief of staff. Okay, possibly that. All right, um, CIA director. Ben, that's an interesting question. Um, I think people think it's going to be Mike Morrell, but I'm going to throw out a dark horse candidate, which is Avril Haines. Yeah, so, so I, I I would think Avril Haines is is a possible national security advisor too, because she was mm -hmm. just deputy national security advisor. Uh, she was also deputy director at CIA, so that's certainly a possibility. And you would keep uh, a woman in the job. And Morrell is also uh, certainly a possibility. Yeah, definitely for CIA director. Um, director of National Intelligence. The job. Adam Schiff. Ooh, oh, <laughs> really? Oh, no, I see. I, mm, I think he wants attorney general. Yeah, but that's a tricky business. Yeah, it's a tricky I also business. Think, I also think we might see a more like a Sally Yates style attorney general. Yeah, Sally Yates in. or Preet Bharara. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'll throw out a DNI candidate because she actually would want the job, and it would be a bit of a curveball. Sue Gordon. Ooh, nice. That would be a bring her that, back that's from not retirement. Bad. She would like that job, I think. She would be. That's good. a great idea. Yeah, Tammy, what job do you want? <laughs> I want the job that lets me continue to work in my uh, bedroom studio. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, that I may like be the job that lets me just take a nap for the for like four years to catch. That's up called president. On just recovering <laughs> you want to be the commander in chief baby that's what it's all about all right uh let's well, move what on job to... do you want shane oh definitely i want to just be you know just chief of White House spokesman come on shane wants everybody he knows to get those jobs so they'll just be they'll have him on speed dial <laughs> moving on to object lessons <laughs> life could be good life could be very good um, I have an object lesson. You do? Oh, I didn't even ask you guys um, who has I one. I have Ma one, too. You have one? Ben, do you have one, too? I do. 
We all have one. Okay. Well, let me go first real quick, just because I mentioned this at the top. So my object lesson is uh, the new memoir by President Trump's niece, Mary L. Trump, PhD, titled Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. It is a subtle title. Um, <laughs> I read this book yesterday, got my hands on a hot little copy. Uh, and uh, I have to say, it's a it's a very well-written book. Um, it is, at turns, a family memoir. And also, I think it's safe to say, a kind of uh, psychoanalysis at a distance of the president. She does have a PhD uh, in advanced psychological studies. Uh, and she has done graduate courses, she says, in her bio in trauma, psychopathology, and developmental psychology. And she's bringing a lot of those techniques to bear to try and essentially explain why Donald Trump is the way he is and why, why he does what he does and draws a direct line to his father, uh, Fred Trump Sr., as well as her late father, Donald Trump's brother, Fred Trump Jr., who people will remember was the one who was kind of expected to be the heir apparent, but decided to become an airline pilot instead and had a horrible addiction with alcohol that ultimately ended in him losing his life uh, in his early 40s. So it's a good book. It's a very interesting book to pair against the Bolton book because two people on very different ends of the political spectrum arrive at the same conclusion. Ends of self-awareness. <laughs> yes, will arrive at the same conclusion, which is they don't think Donald Trump is capable of being president. Uh, and I think that their assessments of him are strikingly similar, which is interesting considering one person has known him much of her life and the other person uh, worked with him for 17 months. Um, they're a, but it's a, yeah, but check it out. Uh, too much and never enough. Uh, I think she's currently under a gag order and can't talk about the book, but uh, the book is coming out early. It's coming out next week. So I recommend have a read. Tammy, why don't you go next? Okay. So my object lesson is a new poll from Monmouth University, the significance of which, quite simply, guys, is that it proves that I was right and you were wrong. Hmm. Um, you may recall that a few weeks ago, we had a discussion about the slogan, defund the police. And uh, I believe that all three of you suggested that it was at a minimum less than effective. And I made an argument in favor of it. Well, a new survey from Monmouth University found that 77% of American adults say that defund the police means to change the way police departments operate, not to eliminate them. That view is shared by 73% of white non-college educated Americans and two-thirds of Republicans. Just 18% of Americans say the movement wants to get rid of police departments. Okay. That's pretty interesting. And Monmouth is a very good pollster uh, polling group. And so uh, it actually... Uh, I would put some stock in that. I would like to see more polling on that before before I embrace the slogan, defund the police. How about embracing the slogan, you were right? <laughs> uh, as I say, uh, I will w await more polling before I concede. Uh, you know what, that, Tammy, that you were right. My was wrong. Susan, thank you so Empirically, much. Empirically, you were right. Ben, why don't you go next? So the other day, I was driving down Massachusetts Avenue, just south of the Brookings Institution, uh, which is all closed up. And I noticed that the Australian Embassy, which is our neighbor next door uh, or a couple blocks from the Brookings Institution, was in the middle of being demolished. Oh, yeah. Which, 
which uh, rather surprised me because the last time I had seen the Australian embassy, it was standing tall and proud, if a bit encased in construction draperies of one sort or another. Uh, and I was not expecting the Australian embassy to be torn down. And I'm trying not to take it as a comment on U.S.-Australian relations. And then I noticed something really interesting. On the third floor of the half-demolished Australian embassy, there was a room, uh, or what used to be a room, entirely encased in steel. Mm-hmm. And I realized that it was a skiff, mm-hmm. um, nakedly visible from the street. And I also realized that I think I have been in that skiff, uh, giving a briefing on a non-classified matter, actually. They just happened to have the meeting in a skiff. It's where you watch the classified version of Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> yes, exactly. But the the... The cool thing was, this was for people who have heard us talk about skiffs and who uh, have wondered, you know, what are these secure compartmented information facilities that we're referring to? And of course, you can't really take pictures of them because that sort of defeats the point uh, when they're alive. But this is a dead skiff. And so I snapped a picture of it from my car and it is on our show page and you can see the idea of a skiff sitting there in what used to be what used to be a skiff in what used to be the Australian embassy and i want to say i have only moderately high confidence that that is one of the the old skiffs in the Australian embassy and if somebody <laughs> who wants to take a look at this and tell me that i'm wrong and it's actually not a skiff it's you know some other kind of thing that you it's a walk in refrigerator you know, um, yeah, it's a really big wine cellar. Where they keep their Tim Tams. Um, I'm, I'm open to being persuaded, but uh, it'll be there on our show page. And you, can, <laughs> you can look at the, the Australian embassy's skiff. And for those in the Australian government, maybe you should have left the hanging drapery up until you finish knocking down the building. Yeah, you found your secret koala preserve. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Susan. Um, so I have an object lesson. Um, it's an article, actually. It's it's a little bit old. It came out on July 2nd by Greg Jaffe. Uh, that ran in the Washington Post, and there was sort of an accompanying uh, sort of short documentary with it. Um, it's a long article entitled The Cursed Platoon. Um, and it's the story of uh, the, the sort of the men of the first platoon, a, a group that was uh, deployed in Afghanistan prior to 2013. Um, their commander committed a murder and was convicted um, and, and was pardoned by the president, um, Clint Lawrence is his name. Um, he was recently pardoned by the president. Um, and it's sort of the story of the men of that platoon returning to the United States and trying to come to grips with the meaning of their service in sort of this hyper-politicized environment um, with the personal trauma of war. Uh, five of the three dozen uh, individuals uh, have since died since returning home. Um, it's just, it's a really, really powerful sort of complex uh, piece. And I would just sort of commend it to readers who, um, you know, are, are looking to think about the the human cost of the the sort of politicization of the military and other institutions that we talk about on this show a lot. Um, because I think sort of understanding the toll that it takes at an individual level is going to be really really important to the project of restoring things moving forward. 
Yeah, I'm glad you like that. It's a it's a fabulous piece. Greg's a just a tremendous journalist and a absolute prince of a man. So I miss seeing his face every day. Hmm. Someday soon. Someday soon. Someday soon we'll all be together, just like the Queen of England said. So you know it's true. God, I feel like you're about to break into song. Oh, that, that dun, will never dun, happen. Dun, dun, <laughs> Not while I'm hosting. That does bring us, though, together. to the end of the podcast as like does my backup said. on the way out. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find um, Lawfare and Rational Security merchandise approved by Her Majesty the Queen. At Harrods. And Tim Tams. And Tim Tams. <laughs> and so miniature <good>. skiffs. <laughs> Have you gotten the, the Lawfare whiskey mug, whiskey uh, tumbler yet, Shane? I mean, do I have to pay for it? Well, I paid for it. Oh, for sucker. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll get right on that. <laughs> I'll send you some. Thank you. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and a review. It really helps other people find the show, and we appreciate it. Our audio engineer this week was Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show was produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Joe Biden and his nostalgic yet unsettling Blah Blah Baran. Nice. I mean, sure. Remember Bomb Sing it, Bomb Shane. Aran? Sing it. Do it. Yeah. Do it. That's a song that anybody can sing. It's just Bomb 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 Aran. It's actually Barbara bom, Ann, but it'll be. Bomb 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 we got it, Shane. <laughs> yeah. Do you have it? Okay. Because Sophia Yan only has one shot to do backup for this. On behalf of my good friends, Tamara Kaufman with us. Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy. I'm Shane Harris. We will blah blah at you next week. Take care. Blah blah. (laughs) Blah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.